Gabe Kohler. This is Aaron Hartz. You're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Boom. You are tuned into episode 4.11 of the Avalanche Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour Podcast is proudly presented by TAS by MND, an avalanche of solutions, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, Drink Beer Outside, with additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Today's episode highlights two different interviews. Uh, We are highlighting some of the smaller Type 2 avalanche centers out there. Um, It may be a little bit less known about. Um, We talked to Gabe Kohler and Aaron Hartz from the Central Oregon Avalanche Center. And then we highlighted an interview with Victor McNeil, a forecaster from the Wallawa Avalanche Center. We talk a little bit about how both of these avalanche centers and organizations came about and the the growth that they've seen throughout their early years and and some of the challenges and success stories that came along with that. We talk about outreach and education that goes on uh, from both of these centers as well as funding challenges and how the avalanche advisories are formulated. So without further ado, we're going to kick it off with a, an interview with Gabe and Aaron from the Central Oregon Avalanche Center. All right, this morning I'm sitting down with Aaron Hartz and Gabe Kohler uh, in beautiful Bend, Oregon. Welcome to the show, you guys. Thanks, Thanks, Caleb. Yeah. Why don't you introduce yourselves? Tell us a little bit about your background and your skiing, guiding, and forecasting history. Hey, this is Aaron Hartz. I live here in Bend, Oregon. And uh, I was born and raised in Oregon, grew up on the west side of the Cascade Range and started skiing at a pretty early age. Um, I moved to Bend about 10 years ago and I've been working as a ski guide and alpine guide here in Oregon. And I got involved with the Central Oregon Avalanche Center uh, about seven years ago. This is Gabe. I uh, moved to Central Oregon in uh, maybe 2003 to work as a rock climbing guide and then started moving into alpine guiding and uh, had to take avalanche courses. And that's when I figured out backcountry skiing was rad, kind of grew up cross-country skiing. So I've always loved skiing, but um, then working as a ski guide since maybe 2012 and uh, probably working for the avalanche center, same as Aaron, about seven years. I'm not sure. Started as a pro observer and then kind of worked into a forecaster position. Cool. We should mention, you know, Aaron's a certified ski guide and Gabe's a IFMGA guide as well. Uh, so lots of guiding work out there and, and yeah. it all ties into avalanche forecasting, really. Imagine. Yeah, they dovetail well together. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about uh, the forecasting that's going on in Central Oregon here. And, and what started out is the Central Oregon Avalanche Association has evolved a bit over the years. Just talk about the, the beginnings and then the evolution there. Yeah, uh, the organization started as, yeah, the association back in about 2008. And prior to that time, there was no, you know, there was no avalanche center in central Oregon. There was no real 
way for people to get snow and avalanche information. So, you know, at that time, uh, two guys who had lived in Salt Lake and Jackson and skied in other places realized there was this gap here in Central Oregon. And they started the COA um, just to have some kind of public forum where people could share snowpack information. And it was really started as a thing where people could just go onto the COA website and, um, you know, after they came back from a day of touring and just write up an observation post and put it on there. Uh, it didn't really take off very well, though. <laughs> there, just, there just wasn't really uh, the background of sharing information here. A lot of people here didn't know even what really avalanche centers were. And um, it didn't really take off. There would be like a couple of observation posts at the end of the year. And then starting in about 2014, I think, um, COA, you know, was raising a little bit more money and they decided to hire a group of professional snow observers and started the first COA observer team. And as a couple years went by, um, that kind of stepped up. And then two years ago, we started issuing biweekly advisories. And also at that time, we kind of moved into a role of a type two avalanche center. Okay. So what's the difference between a type two and a type one avalanche center? <clears throat> well, the a type one avalanche center is, you know, for example, like the Northwest Avalanche Center or the Utah Avalanche Center who have, you know, full-time staff, they issue daily advisories or forecasts and, you know, they have that, uh, you know, daily product. A type two avalanche center is one that is operating on a, uh, a lower operating budget. Um, they usually don't have full-time staff. It's a part-time staff. Um, you know, maybe they're issuing uh, advisories once a week or a couple times a week. I'll j I can jump in real quick. Another main <laughs> difference, you know, that we see and that the public sees especially is uh, we get the, well, why don't you guys issue a danger rating? Mm -hmm. And, um, that it, part of it is just because we don't have the staff to like monitor that danger rating every 24 hours. Um, so one, another big difference along with like the regularity of the forecast that Aaron was mentioning is a type one center, right? You're going to go on the webpage and you're going to be like, oh, it's considerable today. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas we will kind of in our advisory, tell you what the problems are we'll try to locate them in the terrain, but we're going to stop short of saying like, oh, it's low or it's moderate. Right. Uh, some of the guidance of, of moving from kind of this just website that was observations from the public to becoming a type two avalanche center was, was, I believe from Simon Troutman from the National Avalanche Center kind of coming down and, and giving you guys some guidance a little bit, giving the organization some guidance as to maybe in what direction to move, right? Yeah, it kind of seemed like, um, you know, we were doing the observations for, we did that for a year or two and then, um, I know Jonas, when he came on board, he's like, you know, everyone who's doing these OBS is qualified to kind of look ahead a little bit. Maybe we should do like something like that. Yeah. So we started doing, I think originally it was like a weekly and we call it a snowpack assessment or something like that. Um, and then Kevin Grove, one of our board members, he is on in touch, pretty regular touch, I think, with Simon Troutman and was able, was like, well, you guys kind of look like a type two center. It wouldn't take much to mm -hmm. be that. And that's brought us to where we are today. All right. 
So I think, Aaron, right? That sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my view of things. So talk a little bit about the forecast area, how big is the forecast area, kind of the general snowpack characteristics, what sort of avalanche issues do you guys see in Central Oregon? Yeah, the forecast area is kind of amorphous. Like uh, in, in some sense, it could be like the area between the other two avalanche centers, between like Mount Hood and Mount Shasta, but obviously it's like a part-time forecast center. We're not going to be able to cover all of that. So realistically, our forecast is pretty applicable to the Three Sisters Wilderness. Yeah. Basically covers uh, these three giant volcanoes and all the surrounding hillside. Might It's probably applicable up to Mount Jefferson. And uh, most of our ski terrain, I'd say regularly, reliably, um, we have great skiing from about 6,000 feet up. Our mm-hmm. mountains top out at 10,000 feet. A lot of these last few winters, we've had good, really good skiing below as low as, I don't know, 4,000 feet a lot of times. But... Um, in general, kind of higher, just to the you know the top 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 of below tree line, and then at tree line and above. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of our terrain. Also, a lot of our terrain is worth noting is like pretty inaccessible. It's like sled access terrain. It's wilderness. Um, it's kind of hard to get to a lot of like the bigger avalanche terrain. Okay. We would like to expand our coverage more to like Mount Jefferson area and Palina Peak, but you know we just don't have the the person hours and time and staff to get out to those farther places. So we're really, that's why we're focusing on the three sisters wilderness and surrounding area. Okay. And then how many, how many forecast observers do you guys have? We have four, four observers. Uh, Aaron and I are two of those four. We also have Jonas Tarlin and Phil Bowker. Okay. And then Aaron and I issue the biweekly advisories. Okay. And do you guys kind of split up the area? In terms of, like, do you travel in, in certain sections more than others? or It's pretty loosely coordinated, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as in, I think most observers try to go wherever the avalanche problem's the worst or wherever uh, <laughs> wherever the skiing's the best, wherever people are going to be going. Sure. We, you know, we try not to, to um, go to the same place, you know, multiple times a week. But, you know, sometimes depending on weather and conditions – we tend to hit a few places more than others, but we do try to spread out and, you know, kind of even it out through the terrain. Right. So, so what do you guys uh, see generally in the snowpack here and what sort of avalanche problems do you face the most? I think, you know, the problems we face the most, I would say, are wind slabs and storm slabs. That's just kind of you know how it works here in Oregon we get you know a storm with a foot or more of snow and um, you know you hardly ever get a storm here without wind so we almost always get some wind transport and it seems like you know with most storms we have a wind slab and storm slab problem for a couple of days and they usually you know go away pretty quick right yeah and then springtime problems we usually get rain once or twice a year and then Big avalanches when it warms up, big mm-hmm. spring shed. Right. And we do occasionally get some persistent weak layers. <laughs> yeah, such as last season, right? Last season we had, you know, three, I would say three main different persistent weak layers. Um, buried surface horror in December and then some buried facets in January and then another round of buried surface horror in March. Um, and they lasted a little bit longer than usual. You know, usually our, we'll get like one persistent weak layer and it's gone in like 
a week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but these lasted for, you know, three weeks or, or more. We were finding them. And uh, there was avalanche activity with all those associated with all of those layers at one time or another. Right. And so you said that's a little bit atypical, but not certainly not out of the question. Did it catch people off guard at all? Or did you feel like your advisories kind of related that hazard pretty well to the public? I think the advisories related it pretty well. We were talking about a lot on the site. Um, so I don't think anyone was caught off guard, really. Mm-hmm. A lot of times what happens, you know, our buried surface ore will get covered by just, you know, a little bit, maybe three inches. And people are skiing it and not noticing it, but it's on our radar. So then it's not too not too surprising for sure. Folks. Definitely, I think like the general public that maybe isn't in the backcountry very much. We had a avalanche on Tumalo, which everyone can see from town pretty much or driving to the mountain. And got everyone real excited and it was in the news, but it wasn't really, uh, you know, we were like, yeah, that, that yep. was kind of expected. We've <laughs> been seeing that everywhere else where no one's looking and right. digging for that layer and stuff like that. So it wasn't a big surprise to me, but I think it got everyone pretty excited. Sounds like successful yeah. forecasting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It uh, kept the observers digging more than usual. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, a lot of times we're just dealing with wind slabs and storm slabs and we, we don't really need to dig pits all the time but yeah it kept us digging and checking on those layers right so what sort of user groups do you have accessing the advisory i would say you know um it's kind of split in central oregon uh we do have a lot of motorized users um we're unsure you know to what extent they're using the website i think the user group we reach the most are the the ski tours and split borders. Um, you know, we do have some motorized users who are um, reading the advisories and cluing into what's going on out there. But I think that's a user group we still, you know, have work to do to reach mm-hmm. in a better way. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you, it seems like you only need to travel so far as the trailheads in Central Oregon these days to see just how busy it is. And and I'm sure you guys have seen an increase in use in the last five to 10 years here. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Sometimes even hard to find parking, right? Some of these trailheads in the, <laughs> in, during the weekends. We don't want to give That's... away any secrets. It seems like there's already <laughs> enough people in Bend, but... Yeah, the parking is one of the conundrums to access the backcountry these days. Even, you know, midweek and um, it seems like Friday is the new Saturday here in Central Oregon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on a Friday, it's hard to find parking even. Sure. <laughs> and so what's the Forest Service's role in all of that? You know, are they taking any, are they trying to control use at all? And I mean, this is all access to public land, right? And so are they doing anything to help out with any of these traffic issues or taking any interest in, in how many people are accessing the, the land, their land for, or our land, I should say, for, yeah. for recreation? It's kind of more than I know. I'm sure they are taking an interest in it. Um, some of the busier snow parks, I know like the, the busiest snow park in Central Oregon is probably Dutchman Snow Park because it's really it's a small snow park. And how long ago was Capco built? Maybe five or six years ago yes they built a giant one just down the hill okay um a lot of years there's not snow to that snow park Uh and i think more than anything maybe people are just lazy about not wanting to do the couple extra miles up the snow machine road but Mm -hmm. i know when i have the chance i park there it's way less stressful right (laughs) (laughs) i assume that a lot of people take for granted 
the presence of avalanche centers and avalanche forecasts and in mountain communities. And I think it's a misnomer to think that these things just run themselves, right? It takes a lot of work, takes a lot of money. And many of the, the type one centers out there are federally funded through the forest service with additional support from friends of avalanche center groups. Those are vital parts. Um, Central Oregon Avalanche Center is not federally funded. And so I'm just interested in some of some of the ways that you feel like there are strengths in that, you know, from kind of a grassroots community aspect. And then also some challenges of not having the funding of, of the Forest Service or federal dollars. Yeah, I'd say the big challenge is just that we I'd like to be a type one center and we're not because we don't have enough money. Mm -hmm. So that's like a pretty big roadblock. Yeah, I would say, you know, the, the fundraising is challenging. Um, you know, we, we built this avalanche center from the ground up and it all started with community donations, um, local businesses donating product for raffles and selling or local businesses giving us some money each year. Um, and then fundraising events grew, you know, a fundraising party, uh, a ski mountaineering race, um, some raffles at ski movies. And now the bend saw, you know, those are all fundraising events that are bringing money in. Uh, we've also got some industry partners that are helping a little bit, but the, yeah, the, the challenge is just keeping the money coming in and trying to grow. It seems like, um, you know, there's still room to grow, but we're kind of plateauing with, you know, fundraising, it seems like. So we, we really need to find ways to, to kind of boost that up so we can have a budget where we could have full-time staff and daily forecasts. Mm -hmm. And are there any type one centers out there that are not federally funded that are putting out an, an advisor and a hazard rating? I think, I think the only one, and I could be wrong, is the Crested Butte Avalanche Center. Um, so certainly, you know, there's the possibility of that happening in the future with or without federal dollars. Yeah, I would, I would think so. Aaron knows better about the fundraising and the money admin type side of things. I think it's definitely possible. Um, you know, we have been, we have had discussions with the Forest Service in the past, um, the Deschutes National Forest, about creating some kind of partnership. We haven't been able to, you know, to make that partnership happen yet, um, most likely due to funding in the, you know, with the federal government and some other things. But those are discussions that we like to keep having with the Forest Service. But in the meantime, you know, we're pushing ahead. We're, we're trying to come up with new ways of fundraising, trying to develop new partnerships with the industry and, um, you know, just trying to grow with the community. So. We're not letting it hold us back. You know, we're mm -hmm. still shooting for that goal of having a type one avalanche center. We just have to figure out how, how we can get there, whether it's with uh, any kind of government funding or if it's just, you know, continuing on with the grassroots nonprofit kind of thing. Right. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. I was talking to Jonas a little bit last night after Ben saw, which is a great event, growing event. Um, and he, we, we, we watched this great, talk from Anne St. Clair from Canada, um, who did a, a research project 
out of Simon Fraser University about how the public accesses the advisory and what sort of information they sort of synthesize through reading that. And, and there was a vast majority of the people that took this survey who really just look at the danger rating and maybe the bottom line. And so, um, you know, it seems like that's really important to convey to the public and, and hopefully you guys are able to start doing that in the future. Yeah, it's tough. It, you know, with our we have a bottom line section on our advisory. That's the first thing people say. But definitely when you're otherwise it's pretty free form what you're writing and you got to think like, who's my target audience on this? Mm-hmm. It's, it's tough. There's a lot. I think there's a lot more thought that end of things when you don't have, OK, danger rating, where in the terrain is it located? You know, it's a little less of a form, mm-hmm. which can make things more challenging, I think, in sure. some ways and easier in others. We would like to put in that, you know, the the terrain rows and the danger rating, but it just doesn't make sense if we're doing it, you know, bi-weekly because it changes so fast here. But yeah, we would like to, <laughs> we'd like to do that. Absolutely. Certainly an overarching goal for the center. Um, so what are some stories of success with the growth and involvement of the community that you guys have seen in the last few years? I'd say one thing, it kind of dovetails to what we were just talking about as far as like raising funds and stuff like that. But one thing that I think has been awesome with the Avalanche Center and as far as community outreach too, is the center hired um, a development director maybe two or three years ago, Zoe Roy. And uh, that's been a huge success because we have like a person who just, their job is just to interact with industry and the community. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, it's not some board member who's going to their full-time job like Aaron goes ski guides all day and then he like tries to get on Facebook and talk to Black Diamond or something I don't know how that stuff works but someone's do that's their day job and I think that's been a huge success I think the the membership program has also been a big success we started memberships uh four or five years ago and that's just been something that you know it's a way for the community to to feel like they're a part of the Avalanche Center and um it brings in money but it also kind of makes it something that the community feels like they're a part of. Mm-hmm. How about community involvement with observations and, and people sending in OBS? Has that grown over the last little bit? Yeah, it's grown probably exponentially. Aaron has the numbers because he just talked about this yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, like I was saying back in, when it started in 2008, there would be like three OBS posts at the end of the year. This past uh, season, we ended up with about 113 community posts so that was over double what we got the previous year and um you know the quality has also uh become better you know we get some some people out there who are really tuned into the conditions and have a you know a good way to write up a obs post um you know some community observations are more useful than others but the community has gotten more engaged and really stepped up with their observation posts. And that helps Gabe and I a lot because, you know, there's only four people on the observer team. They're not out every day. So the community posts are really filling in that gap and we get some really good, useful information out of that. Yeah. Pretty essential. Something that I've noticed on your site that's super helpful, especially for people that maybe don't know the lingo, don't know swag observation guidelines is kind of the quick observations drop down menu that you all have. Maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, we call it a short form, and it's basically something we instituted a couple of years ago. Um, something I saw when I was guiding in Canada, that's like the first thing you see when you go to submit an OB um, up in Canada. And I was like, can we borrow this? And they were like, yeah, sure, use it however you need to. So it's basically, um, 
you check boxes. It says like, what was the skiing like? Was it powdery? Was it heavy? Was it wind effect? And you just check these boxes. It's real. I think almost anybody who toured could do it if they had their eyes open and they're, they're moving through the snow. Um, and I, you know, Aaron and I will even use it a lot of times if it's not like our paid observation day, but we're out guiding and we're seeing something, we might come home and just check those boxes. Mm-hmm. I even do it from the field if I'm seeing notable stuff when I'm out in the yurts or something like that. Mm-hmm. So super useful and definitely something I'm always trying to plug. And people can check boxes if they saw avalanches or triggered avalanches or, you know, what the um, weather was like. And then there's also a comment box so they can write in some of their own observations if they want to. But yeah, it's definitely, I feel like it's made the observations more approachable Mm -hmm. for people, maybe especially people who don't have, you know, formal avalanche education. It just seems like it's more approachable and it's been useful. Right. I always like to make a plug too that like uh, the the absence of signs of instability are still good observations to send into any avalanche center, right? And that helps the forecasters formulate a forecast. So just because you didn't see signs of instability doesn't mean that you shouldn't report that. No, it's huge. Exactly. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. We tell people to even make a report if they found good skiing or, you know, you don't have to say where it was necessarily, yeah. but maybe like an aspect and elevation, you know, like what sort of snow conditions you're seeing. Yeah. Right. We don't want to give away any stashes here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so where can people find out more about Central Oregon Avalanche Center? You guys got social media outlets, stuff like that. Yeah, we have a website, coavalanche.org. Um, and there's links to all of our social media on there. You can find the advisories the observation post and just more information about events. Cool. And we do have Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. All right. What sort of events do you have coming up for the 1920 season? Well, we just wrapped up the bend saw yesterday. So that was one of our big events. And then um, we've got a couple of small regional events, movies and things like that coming up. Um, but the next big event will be our fresh tracks fundraiser at 10 barrel brewing. That's like our kind of, you know, following that snowball model that a lot of avalanche centers have. And we have beer, food, DJ, silent auction, and it's just a way for the community to come together, hang out, drink some beer, uh, bid on some cool gear and uh, support the avalanche center. That sounds like a blast. You know, do you know when it is? That is February 1st. Nice. We have the Vert Fest Ski Mountaineering Race that will be at Mount Bachelor. And I believe that will be in April this year. So that's a great event too. We have the vendor village with a bunch of tents and, you know, goodies and swag and stuff. And people can uh, show how fast they can ski uphill and ski downhill. Yeah, I've never made it to that, but I always enjoy seeing kind of the highlight reel. It looks like people are having a really good time and dressed up in funny costumes and stuff like that. It looks like a blast. Yeah, Gabe and I were wearing tutus this year. Oh, no. Whoa, okay. Forgot news to, to me. Gabe. News to me. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Um, and then big news for, uh, let's see, the fall of 2022, right? ISSW is going to be back in, in Bend. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was in Central Oregon, I think, back in the 90s. Right. And uh, it's going to be in Bend, you know, in 2022. So. Uh, a lot of us at the Avalanche Center are going to try to go to the ISSW up in Fernie next year just to kind of check it out and get a feel for it. And, uh, yeah, we're looking forward to that. That's a big event to come to our our town. Yeah, sounds great. 
Well, Gabe, Aaron, thanks a lot for taking the time to sit down and kind of explain what's going on in Central Oregon with the Central Oregon Avalanche Center. Exciting stuff and definitely seems like some room to grow and, and you have the community backing to hopefully do that in the future. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks, Caleb. Yeah, cheers. All right. Thanks, fellas. Next up, we have Victor McNeil from the Wallowa Avalanche Center. Here we go with Victor. Welcome to the show, Victor. How are you doing this morning? Great. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thanks for making the time to come on to the show and tell us a little bit about the Wallowa Avalanche Center. Yeah, thanks for having me. I was hoping you could introduce yourself. Just talk about your background, where you're from, how you got into the snow and avalanche realm of things and, and kind of the, the roadmap of your career so far. Sure. Yeah, so um, this is be my 10th winter um, working and recreating in the, the mountains of Northeast Oregon. So after I finished college down at Southern Oregon University, um, I started my first guiding job working on Mount Shasta and in that was a summertime job and I spent a couple summers there. Um, while I was down living in Ashland, I took um, a level one and, and a level two AVI course um, through the Forest Service and that was kind of my first introduction. I bought a split board and immediately fell in love with, with the sport. Um, the following winter, I went out to Silverton, Colorado and internshiped at the at the mountain there. And following that winter, um I had known that there was a a yurt-based ski business um in the Wallowa Mountains as a a resident of Oregon. Um and so I contacted the owner and and the following winter um moved out to Enterprise, Oregon to work up there in the yurt operation. Um, and I've been working there ever since, um, ski guiding, uh, multi-day hut trips, um, around the Wallowa mountains. And then about three, three winters ago, um, I took over as the executive director and forecaster, um, for the Wallowa avalanche center. All right. And so talk a little bit about how the Wallowa avalanche center got its start. Why was there need in that region and then how has it grown yeah so the unfortunate story of of the Wallow avalanche center is um a lot of uh the impetus for it being started and then some of the big funding for the center has been due to accidents um and so in the spring of 2009 i believe there was um, a fatality in the northern Wallowas. Um, near Aneroid Lake. And um, after this occurred, I think there was a group of, of locals in the community, um, backcountry skiers, the owner of the ski guide business. And those folks all sort of got together and, and talked about the need for distributing information about avalanches in the region um, and, and trying to start up a forecasting center. And so the, the next winter, was the the first season for the Wallow Avalanche Center. Um, it gained its um, nonprofit status and and basically started um, putting out kind of like a weekly synopsis of what was going on in the snowpack. Um, and since then, this is our tenth tenth year, so we're excited. We've made it a decade. Um, we've had some other tragedies 
Um, there was a, an accident in the Southern Wallawas in 2014 where there was a, a double fatality um, on a guided trip. And after that accident took place, um, there was a, a large um, influx of money um, through uh, Boeing and then also through Georgetown Brewing and a bunch of other folks. Um, and, and basically, once that occurred, then the Avalanche Center had um, enough money to hire a paid director slash forecaster. So initially, when the Avalanche Center started, um, the the guy that was um, forecasting, Keith Stebbings, he was just basically doing it as a volunteer. Um, so in the uh, the winter of 2015, 2016, um, Kip Rand, who was a, a good friend of mine, also a ski guide and area instructor, um, he was hired on as basically the first paid sort of director, forecaster um, for the Avalanche Center. Um, anyone who ever met Kip knew that he was a phenomenal individual, um, great skier, and had a real sense for adventure. Um, and he was skiing in March of 2016. Him and a friend of his were doing this really big day um, in the Wallawas with a couple um, lines that had never been skied before. And he was standing on top of uh, Chief Joseph, which overlooks um, the Wallawa Valley. And he was trying to figure out a way through this Cornage Ridge line um, to drop into the, the bowl on Chief Joe. And the cornice um, broke much further back than he would have ever anticipated. Um, and it took him for a big ride. When he came to rest, he actually was um, still alive, uh, which is pretty amazing. Um, but it wasn't too long after that that he he died from internal injuries. Um, and so that was a huge tragedy, huge blow um, to our community. Um, and yet again, we then there was the Kip Rand Memorial Fund. So more money was raised um, in his honor. And, um, and then the following winter, um, I took over in 2016, 2017, um, as the, as the director. So, um, that's, that's where we're at currently today. All right. Well, certainly somewhat of a somber history to the Avalanche Center and, and, um, you know, the community I'm sure has, has felt that quite a bit and especially in such a small zone, such as the mountains of Northeast Oregon. So our, our thoughts go out to all those affected by those avalanche accidents. Um, talk a little bit more about the Wallawas, kind of the, the size of the range and the physicalities. Um, what's it like? What's a typical snowpack like there on a normal year? Yeah. So, um, the Eagle cap wilderness, um, which is kind of in the heart of the Wallawa mountains is, about 355,000 acres. Um, and our forecasting zone is primarily um, in that eel cap wilderness, but it does extend out, out beyond that. So I'm not totally sure on how many acres that is. Um, we also forecast for the Blue Mountains, um, which are between LeGrand and Pendleton. So a portion of those and, and then there's an extension of the blues that's right across from the Wallowas to the west um, that is known as the Elkhorn Mountains. Um, so those are the, basically the, the zones that we forecast for. 
Um, elevation range is, you know, between 5,000 and just under 10,000 feet. Um, and our typical snowpack is, is intermountain. So there can be a pretty stark contrast in the, the snowpack depth between different zones, especially like the northern and southern Wallawas. Since most of our storms are tracking from the southwest, um, it's not uncommon to get twice the amount of snowfall or more um, in the southern Wallawas as we do in the northern. So especially early winter, um, it's not uncommon to have persistent weak layers. And then depending on the year, um, we may find those persistent weak layers lingering for later into the season. Um, but most of the time, just because we're kind of um, we're not too too far from the ocean and it's not as cold here as some further inland um, mountain ranges, you know, by later in the winter uh, on a good year, we've got a pretty happy, um, healthy snowpack. So um, maybe not quite as scary as as some of the more inland ranges. Sure. Well, it sounds like I, I unfortunately I've never been out there. Um, certainly on my list, but from what I hear from lots of people and checking out some pictures, it looks like some pretty serious alpine terrain. Yeah, especially if you're over in the northern Malawas or a couple zones in the Elkhorns, um, you know, you can get, get up high, you know, below just below 10,000 feet and certainly some really beautiful, um, pretty rugged alpine terrain that you can get yourself into. Um, the one thing that it is kind of an advantage, especially if you're a backcountry skier or split border, is um, there's not a lot of high elevation trailheads. So if you're willing to hoof it up uh, a low elevation um, trailhead to start out with, more like a summer trail, um, you can get into some phenomenal terrain. And certainly the only thing you're probably going to see is maybe some mountain goats. Cool. So it sounds like a, a large area to be forecasting for. Um, how many forecasters do you guys have? Yeah, so it, it's definitely a pretty big region. Um, we, at this point, the last number of years, we've had um, three forecasters. So myself, um, and then we have a couple other um, guys that live in here in Legrand um, that are contributing as well. And then we're also pretty reliant on um, pro observers and then just some observers in our community that have strong background in backcountry skiing and have been traveling in the mountains for many, many years. Um, so it's not uncommon for me to give those guys a phone call or gals a phone call, um, the night before the forecast comes out and just try and figure out if what, uh, what I'm thinking is happening is actually occurring. Um, because where I live in the grand is, is still pretty far drive time to say the northern or southern Wallawas. So, um, yeah, it's certainly quite a bit of, of terrain to cover. Um, but we do the best that we can. And I think most of the time we do a pretty good job. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you guys do. And so what you, you mentioned putting the forecast out. So what does that look like? You guys have a, as some other type two avalanche centers, um, you put out a, like a bi-weekly forecast or advisory? Yeah. So whenever we have enough snow on the ground to start forecasting, usually late November, early December, we'll start with, um, putting out one advisory a week that comes out Thursday mornings. 
And then during the heart of the season in January and February, we put out um, two a week. So those come out again on Thursday and Saturday. And then we try and supplement as much as we can through social media um, and, and on our website if things are changing significantly. Um, one thing that's different from a type one center is, is we're, we're not able to associate a danger rating with our forecast. So mm. we can talk about avalanche problems, but let's say if we put out considerable danger on a Thursday by a Saturday, that could be quite different. And then certainly between like a Saturday and a Thursday, there's a lot of change that can occur. So, um, we focus on the avalanche problems. Um, but a lot of the format of our advisory actually looks pretty similar to, um, type one avalanche centers. Gotcha. And what sort of user groups are accessing the advisories? Um, I'd say primarily we, um, backcountry skiers and snowboarders, mm -hmm. split boarders, um, would be the, the two target audiences just because those folks I think have been, um, educated on using, um, an avalanche center as a resource for their decision-making. Um, but one of my big, um, big things that I've been working on is trying to get, uh, more of the, the motorized crowd, um, a little bit more informed and knowledgeable about what we offer at the avalanche center and trying to get them more on board. So, um, it's hard to know exactly what the user groups are, um, just from looking at the visitors online, but um, I know that certainly we've touched uh, more of that, that motorized community with our presentations and, and field um, workshops. Yeah, certainly a growing population within people that are becoming more aware of avalanche awareness. Um, I noticed on your Instagram feed this morning, actually, that you're giving a, a talk specific specifically to snowshoers coming up too so it seems like you guys are doing a great job of kind of targeting some folks that might not have avalanches right in front and center in their brain yeah and i think the one thing that we are also able to do even as a type two center is um we can put out an avalanche warning um mm -hmm. which especially for those user groups say like snowshoers or cross-country skiers or folks that um, generally, you know, aren't going to be carrying or almost always never going to carry beacon shovel probe, know how to use them, um, or really think that where they're going into is avalanche terrain. And honestly, generally most of the time it is not. Um, but if we do get significant snowfall around here, especially in the lower foothills, which technically are outside of our forecasting zones, um, you know, we've got steep enough terrain in some popular cross-country ski and snowshoe areas um, that definitely do avalanche. So just trying to um, promote that awareness to those user groups that might not be expecting um, to be in that sort of terrain. Yeah, it seems like great outreach. Victor, do you have any numbers of, of people that are accessing the advisories? Is that something that, you're, that you have available? Or, or are there other ways that you can track some growth within people accessing the information you're putting out there? Yeah. So we've kind of, uh, changed the, the format of our website in the last year. Um, so it's a little hard for me to know exactly how many people have looked say since we've been, um, been around, mm -hmm. but 
essentially over the last three years, um, just overall visitors to the to our our website, so that could be anywhere on the page, um, has certainly grown. Um, not a significant amount, but we're averaging around forty to forty five thousand um, views. One thing that is pretty interesting, I was looking this morning um, during those two accidents that I was mentioning. Um, there were a significant number of views to our website, primarily because people were trying to get more information about what was going on. So um, those years, actually, um, we had more more hits on our website than any other year. But I think those are kind of outliers because, again, it was people trying to figure out information about um, those accidents. Mm-hmm. So certainly you know, our, our viewership has, is, has grown some, especially in the last three years. Um, but hopefully we'll continue to grow that. And with that, have you seen some increase in community observations, snowpack observations? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, the community observations can be, you know, pretty hit or miss as far as quantity and quality. Um, but yeah, you know, occasionally we'll have some person who's just snowshoeing up a, a summer trail and came across an old debris pile and, you know, feels feels like sharing it. Um, and we certainly have some folks who get out more frequently that post some really good information. Um, but this area is a little fickle because people kind of move in and out and, you know, people have families, so then they're not recreating as much. So, um, you know, overall, like our, our usership in this region is, is far less than say the Wasatch or the Tetons or, um, the Cascades. Right. Um, we were talking earlier before we hit record about, um, people coming from some bigger population zones, such as Portland, Seattle, or Boise to Northeast Oregon to recreate, or maybe go on a hut trip. And so they're certainly accessing, the advisory and and most likely tracking the advisory throughout the winter prior to their trip there. So that's kind of an interesting user group that you're um, providing a great service for, but maybe they they don't necessarily think of it as their avalanche center that they might pour money into. How does that play out? Yeah, that's, it's kind of an interesting um, challenge, I guess, that we're, we're facing because, we put on um, different fundraising events that are just specific to Northeast Oregon every year. We have our Eastern Oregon Backcountry Festival, which is like a three-day event, and this will be the eighth eighth year for that. Um, but we live in a pretty small community. It's not like there's a lot of people bringing in big piles of money. So um, certainly um, it would be nice if we could – um, increase kind of our donorship from those bigger communities, especially Portland, Seattle, and Boise, where um, there's there are quite a few people who are using our um, site as a resource. Um, but fortunately, this winter we do have um, in the next couple of weeks we've got a fundraiser that's taking place in Portland, and then we also have one in Seattle. So those are great opportunities for folks to come out that have spent time skiing in the Wallawas or recreating, snowmobiling, whatever, um, to show their support for the Avalanche Center. Right. So most of your forecast area is on national forest land, I would assume. Um, any talks with the Forest Service about any funding from them? 
we've certainly um, talked with them, um, you know, basically since the beginning when um, the Avalanche Center first started. Um, but their their funding is um, is very limited in this area, um, and I think the one of the biggest challenges is around here. We just don't really have, um, you know, there's no roadways that are generally ever impacted by by avalanches, hmm. um, and I just don't think there's a big enough user group um, at this point in time. So, you know, I've always thought like, well, we could, if we had the money, we could potentially put out a product um, more often during the week or seven days a week or what have you. Um, But I just don't know if that would really be worth it because I don't think there's enough people getting out. Mm -hmm. And then the folks that are getting out, say like midweek are the locals and the locals generally have a better understanding of what's going on in the snowpack. Um, because it's closer to home for them. Sure. Um, in addition to putting out the advisories and, and doing some community outreach, you all also put on some avalanche education. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So, um, last winter we became a, an area provider. Um, we just ran one, um, rescue course and then one level one. We had a lot of success with the level one. We had 16 folks sign up, um, with a combination of people from the area and also some folks that came out from Portland, um, who have skied here around here before, um, this winter we have a level one, we have a level two, the rescue course, and then, uh, a motorized level one. So, um, we're going to see where that takes us. Um, but really it was kind of like a call out from the locals because they wanted to have, um, an avalanche educator in, in this region. Um, and no one was providing that. Um, so we felt like it was an opportunity for a way to generate, you know, a little bit of money, um, but also provide that education opportunity for folks in the region. And then hopefully we'll develop a a good reputation and pull some people from some of those bigger metropolitan areas as well. Yeah, it sounds like that's definitely filling a need within the community. Um, Victor, where could people find out more about the Wallowa Avalanche Center and, and maybe upcoming events? Maybe you could highlight some of the dates of those upcoming events. Yeah, so the the best way is just um, visiting our website, so wallowaavalanchecenter.org, and hopefully people will be able to navigate the, the site pretty easily. Um, but basically we've got, um, the advisories, observations, weather, um, we have an events tab. This is all on the homepage and then an education tab, um, where you can find out about local avalanche courses. Um, we also have the support button highlighted in red. So, um, we've started up this membership where you can become a member of the, the avalanche center. There's different tiers for that. We also have like our branded hats and sweatshirts and things like that. Um, And then people, if they just want to make a donation, that's available on the site as well. Um, If people are out recreating in the area and they want to post an observation, they can pretty easily do that um, right from the homepage as well. So that's kind of the best one-stop shop. And then, like I said before, um, Facebook and Instagram, um, where we're posting events that are coming up, 
Um, and we're also during the during winter time um, posting conditions updates from the field. Great. Well, I encourage everybody to go check out the website. Even if you haven't ever been to the Wallawas, check it out. See what see what that's all about. And and Victor, thanks a lot for coming on the show and and sharing a little bit about the the center out there in Northeast Oregon. Hopefully we can drum up some more awareness of, of some of these smaller centers that don't necessarily have the, the, the money backing them from federally funding funded dollars. Um, so thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you. you all for tuning in today i hope you enjoyed that and don't forget to go and check out the uh, central oregon avalanche centers website as well as the Wallowa avalanche centers website and if you're in the area of course um, maybe you can make it to one of those great events that is going on to help support those centers um, or maybe you have some some money kicking around and you utilize the advisories formulated by those fine folks and you could donate some money to those avalanche centers. If not, just engage with your local avalanche center. Um, submit observations certainly helps out formulating the be best picture we can for, for these areas that forecasters are forecasting for avalanches for. Music today was Rubber Band by Anatech at the beginning of the hour and Up Folk by Ketza taking us out of the hour both those tracks are made possible through the creative commons license and were found at freemusicarchive.org if you need royalty free music go check out freemusicarchive.org it's awesome the podcast artwork was created by mike t you man t big thanks to our sponsors tas by mnd 10 barrel brewing and interwest insurance we really couldn't do this without you we appreciate your continued support if you are enjoying the show, please tell a friend about it. If you have feedback, feel free to email me at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. Give us a follow on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. <laughs>